Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you? Um, I know you've been having some troubles with a demon leaf blower outside. No, I'm actually feeling morose about the anniversary of the end of 1up.com, a site that both of us have in common. Oh, yes. I forgot that was today. You can always count on Bob Mackey to remind you, and um, I'm kind of glad he did because, yes, it was a very formative site for myself. It was the first, like, real, hey, here's some pay for your work site that I worked for. I think my first piece for them was, of course, like a Mega Man timeline or, or something like that, and I used to do a lot of blogging for them as well. Were you part of the Mega Man anniversary uh, series that Jeremy did? I almost certainly was. I know that anytime we had a Mega Man thing, I was there to contribute, and I contributed to so many of them. I remember, gosh, like when Mega Man 9 came out, we had a lot of pieces about Mega Man in general because that was like the first revival of the series in a long time. A lot of people from that community got their start in the games industry because they were part of 1UP. I was one of them. Uh, Jeff Grubb over at GamesBeat was one of them. We used to talk all the dang time over there. McKinley Noble. Uh, long list, I think. Yeah, uh, I'm glad for social media just so I can keep in touch with a lot of people I worked with. I was always a little bit of like uh, on the edges because I, I wasn't part of the San Fran crew. I was just a, a remote worker who came in once in a very blue moon. But yeah, I still I still remember and miss all those people. Yeah, I showed up just in time for the layoffs. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. There I go. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty grim, unfortunately. But, I mean, Axe of the Blood God can trace its roots all the way back to Active Time Babble, the podcast over on 1UP.com. And if you go looking on archives, you can still find the old Active Time Babble and Role Players Realm uh, podcast. So. Oh, yeah. like I actually love that name, by the way. Active Time Babble is very clever. Was that you? Uh, no, are you kidding me? Actually, I think it was a listener because oh. our first episode was unnamed RPG podcast and Jeremy put out a call for potential names and somebody threw out Active Time Babble and Jeremy was like, that's the one. That's very, very good. I mean, I, you can't top Active Time Babble, seriously. No, no, you really can't. Um, I mean, I like, I like Acts of the Blood God because it means absolutely nothing, but like, I just, <laughs> Active Time Babble is great. Acts of the Blood God, I think, was also a community suggestion and we thought it was just weirdly hilarious so just we ended up and it sounded kind of rpg themed right something that you might find something you might find as loot in the game and i think actually the axe of the blood god appeared in a in an rpg as a, a little bit of an easter egg little i've heard that there is a reference to it somewhere in final fantasy 14 which is great or, or something similar to it which makes me very proud if that's the case all right nadia so things we're going to talk about today today's topic the RPG tropes that we love and hate. We're specifically talking about kind of the things that we're like, yeah, I really love to see this in an RPG versus boo, I don't like this. <laughs> Let's be done with this. Uh, but first things first, Axe of Blood God is a US Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you're enjoying the podcast, do us a favor, leave a review. We always love hearing from you. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We also have a weekly newsletter that comes out every week, uh, every Wednesday. You can go sign up for that on the site. Nadia, what is this week's newsletter about? Well, this week, um, the newsletter came out right as we got an announcement about the Animal Crossing Direct that week. And I decided, well, to write about, well, what would it be like if we had an, uh, a Direct based entirely around RPGs? I think that would actually be 
really cool because the Switch, as we have uh, spoken of many times, is very much an RPG machine, but I feel like a lot of RPGs get buried underneath the the constant deluge of, of games coming out for the Switch. And I'd like a, a chance to just for Nintendo to kind of single out some and say, hey, here's some, not only some really great AAA RPGs, some, you know, really good mid-tier indie RPGs, here's some smaller ones that you might like as well. I think that would be, I don't know how many people will tune in, but I certainly would. <laughs> I, I love that earlier this week, I was like, Nadia, I have an idea for an article. You should do an exploration of how Nintendo Direct hype has gotten completely out of control. And you came back with an article titled, uh, Nintendo Direct hype has gotten completely out of control, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that was a that was a fun article because I was like, well, okay, let's look at how bad things have gotten. And of course, you have a lot of obnoxious fans who are very loud about Nintendo Directs, but you also have like so many so many fans who just have so much fun with it. Like Resetera or Resetera to this day, I don't know how to pronounce that. Had these massive, massive. Is it Resetera? I think that's yeah. That makes a lot more yes. sense. Um, you have, they had these massive, massive threads that go on and on. And I mean, they're not like, you know, really stupid or mean or anything like that. They're just people sitting there speculating about like what they'd like to see from the next Direct, uh, how Nintendo has broken their hearts or made their lives better with these Directs. And then you go to like YouTube and you watch, for example, people reacting to news like, you know, the reveal for Banjo-Kazooie at E3 2019. And everyone's just like so hype about it. I couldn't really bring myself to be like, oh my god, this sucks. That It doesn't. I think it's a really fun culture that gets a little out of hand at times, but uh, then again, it's, everything gets out of hand these days. I mean, like I said in my article, just Google Raylo if you want to, you know, if you hate your time and you don't, you don't want to, like, use your free time for anything constructive. Uh, there's constant fights about Star Wars shipping and stuff like that that gets really mean that you don't really see that in, in direct news. So I couldn't bring myself to really dump on, on Nintendo Direct. Well, Star Wars fan culture is an entirely different kind of thing, and frankly, it's insane, and I don't understand it. I, I try to understand it. I just I lost myself very quickly. Yeah. As for Nintendo Direct hype, I think it's just kind of fascinating how very invested people are in the next round of Nintendo announcements, how they can just obsessively speculate and look for every single little shred of evidence that another stream is coming to sate their desires for more news another yeah. breath of the wild 2 update another surprise anything anything at all any scrap of information get yeah. it out there you got youtubers who have built like their entire career around it fake insiders running around claiming they have all of this knowledge yeah <laughs> people making actual uh, fake announcements that look very very realistic and then you look at the Twitter account and it's just one letter off Nintendo's official account. Yeah, I feel like my Twitter feed was being bombarded by that for like an entire week. Also, all of the quote-unquote Sony PlayStation 5 uh, media invites. Oh, God. Why do people do this? Why do people got to do a thing? Well, it's like back in the day when people would Photoshop fake uh, sales circulars to be like, oh, look at this game that's about to be announced. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, man. People just got to keep themselves busy. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of very bored people out in this world. Whenever I like, I showed my dad, for uh, for example, a video of like something called like President Mustard Speaks Out, and it's just a, a, a bottle of mustard dressed up in a suit, and it's making like those, those kind of farting sounds you get when the uh, mustard bottle is almost out. And it's just a picture of him, like, you know, debating with Trump, just kind of standing side by side and making these weird farting sounds. My dad looks at that and says, wow, a lot of people have time on their hands, don't they? 
Yeah, I mean, just look at what people are doing with memes. Ah, memes never stop. Memes, memes are eternal. Meme culture is the definition of people having way too much time on their hands. <laughs> yeah, but it's usually pretty funny, at least. All right, let's talk very briefly about some RPG news that happened recently. The first one, The Witcher 3 on Switch received an unexpected update that included a graphical bump. Very exciting, because while Witcher 3 was already one of the best-looking games on the console, because it certainly looked better, and so it's impressive that they managed to wring even more juice out of that console. Uh, I've heard stuff about like how the, the Switch is... Um, it- can be overclocked, but developers usually aren't allowed to overclock it, so I wonder if something happened there. Nintendo said, okay, go for it. Said, I love right. the idea of overclocking a Switch and just having it burst into flames <laughs> in my hand while it's trying to play <laughs> Cyberpunk. Aw, poor Switch. It tries so hard. <laughs> uh, but more importantly, it has cross-save now, which is very exciting, and uh, unfortunately, it's only with the PC version, and the version mm. that I'm playing is on Xbox One. Oh, it's, I guess there's no chance we'll see console crossplay. Maybe Microsoft, they tend to play nice with Nintendo these days. Sony, eh, who knows. But that's actually a very clever way to get people to buy the game again on the Switch because I can think of several people who are like, oh, I would like to, even if they finished The Witcher, there's probably a million things they haven't done, like the DLC, for example, and they're like, it would be really com- compelling to be like, oh, I can play this on the go now and I can finish this game or, or play it on the plane or whatever. Let me tell you, if I if they had put in Xbox One cross save, I would buy Switch a Switcher tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm, of course it has everything right, right there. Yeah, and I'm just not going to play another hundred hours on my Switch because I put so much work into playing Witcher Three. Like that is a dense, dense mm-hmm, adventure. Mm-hmm. Going and getting all of my master armor and all of that stuff. And I still haven't finished the expansions. I, I got to the end of the first expansion, um, but I haven't even touched Blood and Wine. Everybody always says Blood and Wine's the best one. Yeah, so that's actually, um, I would like to see cross-play on, on all the consoles as well, but that's actually a very good start. Yeah, so I wish that I could be able to do it, but as it stands, having any kind of cross-save is really good, and I'm very happy that they did that. It actually motivated Mike uh, to write an article along the lines of cross-save should be the foundational feature on PS5 and Xbox Series X, and I totally agree. Have a big ol' ecosystem. There's no reason to isolate between console anymore. Yeah, we should all open up and join hands and be friends. Oh. <laughs> All right, second piece of RPG news, and this is an interesting one. Persona 5 localization changes for Persona 5 Royal. Uh, Persona 5 Royal impressions and interviews came out last week, and the big piece of news is that Atlas will be changing the rather controversial kind of gay gay panicky... Well, I mean, I guess it was less gay panicky and just more straight-up stereotypes of uh, these characters who are in, I believe, Shinjuku and are hitting on the main character. Uh, Alice will be changing that because the scene came off as predatory. So basically, I'm just going to say it right now. These are There are these two gay men who hit on Ryuji. I think the community had a very strong response to that, and you saw that, and that was definitely altered for Royal. While Namba doesn't expand on how specifically these scenes have changed, she does say that the team made it as if they're 
being very strong enthusiasts for something they like doing. Okay. As Nama <laughs> tells it, there's a, a lot of work being put into seeing whether this change could be made, consulting with production and marketing on it, if it could happen, and what public perception would be. Ultimately, for Royal, we did go with it, and I think we're pretty happy with what it is, Namba says. It's not a significant change, but I think there's enough of a change that people who weren't comfortable going through that part in Persona 5 would feel better this time around. Okay. Nadia, you've, you played through Persona 4. What are your thoughts? Uh, did you ever did you get to see that scene where... Um, okay, yeah. Because as I recall, it wasn't just one scene. It was like kind of a running gag where like, haha, Ryuji's being chased by these like flamboyant gay men. And it wasn't the most harmful stereotype. I think Persona 4 was a lot worse for stereotypes and what have you. But it was still really very, very eye-rolling. I don't like to see that kind of thing in in RPGs, not only because it's, uh, you know, harmful stereotypes, but it's just so done. Like, this isn't a funny joke. I've seen it a million times in, in like, the most, in the earliest animes I, I watched as a kid. And, number one, it gives you a really bad perception of gay people. Number two, again, it's just totally done. I'm not very sad to see it go. I don't think it really contributes anything artistically to the game. Yeah, it's a pretty boring stereotype and fairly discredited at this point. And uh, as somebody pointed out on Twitter, a lot of people are like, oh, it's Japan. They like have a different view on gay people than, say, uh, Western countries. And somebody piped up on Twitter and was like, look, Japan's a real country with real people. And the, the struggle for LGBT equality is real over there. Of course. So stop acting like it's some magic anime land and uh, acknowledge <laughs> this thing. No, absolutely. I, have, I haven't I have read like a whole lot about the struggles that uh, LGBTQ people go through in Japan, but I do understand. Yeah, yes, it is a struggle. Yes, they fight very hard to be acknowledged. Uh, I cannot see anyone over there being, or, or many people over there being really happy with this, you know, silly stereotype that just shows them as, as you know, people who want to chase after high school boys. Yeah, I didn't think that it ruined the game. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I think Persona 4 had some much worse stuff, honestly. Yeah, definitely. I really think they mishandled uh, Kanji completely. So this was just... And I will say, to Persona 5's credit, they do have an excellent character uh, who I think is trans, and that's Lala. She's she's amazing. So, you know, obviously someone there is learning. I'm very glad to see that. But uh, you still have that really sort of cringe part that maybe someone shoehorned in because they thought it was funny. I don't know. But... Uh, yeah, so I don't want to dump on Atlas all day and night because I do think they are capable of learning. But I'm glad that Persona 5 uh, is willing to address mm -hmm. it. Good on Atlas. And I'm curious to see how uh, Persona 5 Royal ultimately comes out. Even though I'm still probably going to just focus on finishing Persona 5. Or, uh, okay, take a shot. I really wish Persona 5 would come out on Switch because that's the way that I would be most likely to finish it. I actually wonder if Persona 5, like my ultimate thing would be if Persona 5 Royal came out on Switch because hearing uh, about Hiran's preview. I mean, that's preview, the obvious one. Yeah, but you never really know what you're going to get. Uh, but hearing uh, Hiran's preview, I really like the idea of going through the dungeons with like that grappling hook. That sounds not only fun, but a really great way to, to speed up your journey. Yeah, and the, the there was a community manager or something who was saying, keep fighting uh, for Persona 5 on Switch. And I'm like, yeah. Uh. I don't, <laughs> don't think Persona <laughs> 5 is coming to Switch anytime soon. Maybe Persona 3. Maybe. That's a huge maybe. Yeah, I would very much like to see the Persona games on Switch, but I don't know. I just feel like if they could have been there, they would have been there by now. 
Yes. Okay, so that is all of the RPG news for the week. Nadia, let's continue on to the main topic. Don't go away. So Nadia, the first time I think I became aware of RPG tropes as being a thing mm-hmm. was when I was playing Legend of Dragoon on the PlayStation. <laughs> that's that's basically. And I started to play it, and I was playing it, and I was like going, "Wait a minute, this is all cliche." <laughs> that's like trope the video game. It's just one big T. Yeah, they were doing the big arena battle, which is just a, a classic RPG cliche. Uh, and where you're like fighting the mysterious villain, and I was like, "Wait a minute! Th- th- they already did this in other <laughs> RPGs. Legend of Dragoon just stole it." Yeah, um, it's funny how our first RPG is always the one that seems so profound. Like uh, I've said many times, how Breath of Fire Two is my first time killing God, and I thought it was like the most brilliant thing ever. When of course anime had done it like fifty billion times by that point. All right, so we've got a list of kind of RPG tropes that we love and we hate. Uh, they could be tropes involving gameplay. They can be tropes involving characters or story beats or that kind of thing. And honestly, I, I think the reason we're kind of exploring this is it maybe says something about our own personal RPG tastes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think we're going to, I think maybe something, for example, I like, you might not like and vice versa. All right. So I think we'll just go back and forth so that we can balance the positive with the mm-hmm. negative, okay? And so, I think the first thing that stands out to me as a thing that I like in an RPG that just immediately makes me interested is literally any customization, okay? And when I say any customization, I mean everything from being able to build your very own character from scratch to even just being able to change the hairstyle of your character or put them in different clothing, or customize the armor in some way. Because that makes me feel like I am more invested in the game. It subsequently, like, it, it makes me feel like I can put myself in the character's Yeah, uh, that totally makes sense for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've talked in the past about character customization, how each of us feels about it, because I am very okay with customization i'm i'm very quick about it like uh okay this looks like a cool anime dude i'm i'm done i'm good but i i totally understand where you're coming from because of course i am in the minority here i am the person who who doesn't care so much about customization but a lot of people care a whole lot about customization so if there was one thing that dragon quest 11 could i could change about dragon quest 11 it would be to have the characters being in different armor yeah, I think you can change that to a degree, but uh, it's not exactly like extremely in depth. Like Final Fantasy fourteen, the whole the whole game is glamour. Just customization, how your character looks and what they wear. Uh, it's insane what some people do. Because like I, I get that they kind of want to have this iconic look for these characters, but I really hate that main character's haircut so much. <laughs> I do wish you could at least change his hair. Uh, you could put a helmet on his head. Can you? Good. Yeah, like if you're playing, you're playing on the Switch, right? There's options yes. to like, uh, you can find helmets that like change your like armor sets that change your appearance, and uh, you can kind of use them as a, as a glamour so that you're not using them as actual defense. So you can actually apply some really good armor, and then on top of that, just kind of 
you know, use the, the look of whatever armor you prefer. Uh, for example, I pretty much play the whole game with uh, Veronica in the cat suit because it's very cute. I, w- okay, so I got to the point where, um, uh, what's the name of the girl that you recruit somewhat late and she can do kung fu? Oh, that's Jade. Yeah, um, so I'm in the se- a bunch of side stories, I guess, right now. Yeah, And yeah. there's a whole bit where she ends up in a, like, Playboy Playboy style bunny suit. Very Toriyama, yes. I, I was kind of okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if I can keep this outfit, I'm fine. <laughs> I do have a bit of a crush on Jade. So yeah, there are alternate outfits, right? Yes. Okay, so I because I'm going to totally put um the the mage in the cat suit. Yeah, the the, uh, the cat suit. The one problem with it is it's a little hard to find. I think you have one shot at it. I don't know if you have it yet or not. What? Oh no, I missed it. There's basically uh, I can't remember which town it was. It was the town that was kind of Venice like. There's these two brothers who are having a bidding war, and they're selling you bits of the armor just to kind of outdo each other, and it's pretty funny. So, I mean, one thing that I appreciate about Divinity Original Sin 2 is that you can do both. You can have pre-rolled characters that you're just enjoying their story and you're kind of role-playing playing as them, and then you can also have your own customized characters. And I think that's the best uh, compromise, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, that's actually, that sounds like a really good compromise. Sometimes, I think Fantasy Star 2 Online, when I played that, it had a good system where you rolled up a uh, random character and then just, like, uh, you you could select very general body types, very general face types, and then adjust it from there. I liked their customization options. It's funny. I didn't grow up really playing with dolls. I didn't like them. Me neither. But, like, my video game characters are basically, like, my my toys that I will dress up in different outfits. No, oh, there you go. My one doll, I threw it in a tree. Um, it came down once there was a storm. And <laughs> you man, threw it, was, it in a tree? I threw it in a tree. I don't know. It was a Cabbage Patch doll. Oh, jeez, Nadia. <laughs> the dolls I had, I liked. Uh, I was very, I was very, very stuck on, I liked dolls that were animals. I liked animal stuff. Like I loved My Little Pony and Popples and Wuzzles and, and all that stuff. But when someone gave me a human doll, I was like, oh, up in the tree it goes. <laughs> all right. And I'm just going to throw out one that I hate. And this is a big one for me. And it drives me crazy. And I might have talked about it in this podcast. I loathe perfunctory fetch quests. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had a big one about that a few episodes ago. Yeah, probably. Maybe when I was talking about Death Stranding. Yes, that sounds about right. Because and here's the thing that's interesting to me, and it just says everything about the difference between uh, me and Mike. And Mike and I, you know, represent very different levels uh, on the, the game spectrum. And that's like totally fine, I think. For Mike, it's, like, really meditative. He feels like he's helping these people out. Uh, You don't have to think about it too much. You're just rolling across the landscape, taking care of uh, making deliveries, that kind of thing. And for me, I'm like, this is literally the biggest waste of time. (laughs) I can be doing so much more than this. This is just boring. It is really rote. It is the laziest possible design. There is no reason to do this. Like, Xenoblade Chronicles has it. MMOs are freaking full of it. Oh, MMOs it's are, are totally just full filler. Of it. It's just there to be filler. One of the funniest things I read in a game was actually very recently. Uh, I was playing Final Fantasy XIV and doing a quest where you're trying to get like a, a relic weapon, and to start with, the blacksmith, who's a real drunk jerk, 
he says to me, oh, you've, you got to fetch me this particular spear and you got, you, you know, you got to uh, apply this certain material, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, yeah, I could do it for you, but I could also wipe your ass. I'm not going to do that either. <laughs> I was like, I got told, man. <laughs> I even if so, if a game puts that in front of me, unless even if it's really easy, just almost out of principle, I won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I can just picture you in school, like a teacher puts down a worksheet and like it's like just busy work, and you're like, I'm not doing this. No, because it's it's just busy work. It is like doing actual homework. Homework was just busy work. So are fetch quests. Mm, that's a good. That's a good take. And that's why Xenoblade Chronicles X just would never appeal to me because it's all fetch quests. One good thing I will say about Xenoblade Chronicles is fetch quests is that you they were basically redeemed as soon as you were finished them. And I like that a lot. Yeah, I'm OK with there are a lot of games with like heavy gathering stuff. I don't like gathering crap either. Mm, yeah, that was one of the things, at least with Dragon Age Inquisition, which was very gathering heavy. And, you know, they did it because they needed they felt like they were short on content, so they just put it in. As yeah. usual, fetch quests are filler. Um, I I didn't mind them because they were optional, but there are games that where like it is mandatory, and if it's mandatory, screw that. <laughs> That's why I'm no never going to get past the first five minutes of Final Fantasy fourteen. I'm just not going to kill the five rats. I'm just not. <laughs> yeah, Final Fantasy fourteen is definitely a lot of fetch quests, like pretty much, as you said, any MMORPG which are just entirely fetch quests. And like Mike, I get a certain sort of zen out of them. I, I kind of meditate as I as I play. So it is a kind of a meditation. At least with Star Trek Online's away missions, like, you know, they were kind of like dungeons, right? Mm -hmm. They weren't always great, but at least they had a story to tell as opposed to kill five of that or kill 10 of this. <laughs> kill 10 boars. Yeah, so if a game is really fetch quest heavy, I'm going to pretty much nope out of it really fast. I, the only reason I didn't do that with Nest, Death Stranding was because I had to play it for review. <laughs> <laughs> and you did review it. Like, as, as, when I read your review, you certainly didn't hate it. You were like, oh, it was a pretty good yeah, game in the end. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I liked the story ultimately. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like, Katie and I are on the opposite spectrum on this. I liked the story. She hated it. I could see Katie totally hating that story. I could just see her, like, just piecing out the minute you, you get a, a ham-fisted metaphor, like a Sam Porter or whatever the hell his name is. Sam Porter Bridges. Oh, yeah, God's she sake. really enjoyed the gameplay, which I was oh. like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> You're looking at this backwards, Katie. I mean, I think it's okay to have different perspectives as long as they are well-defended. Okay. I agree. So my hatred of well fetch quests has been well documented i think they're lazy and awful nadia tell me something that you love to see in an rpg that's gonna just make you go yes rpg woohoo versus nope nope i am noping right the heck out uh, i actually have two sides of the same coin for one of mine uh i like uh silent protagonists who are done well and i know the silent protagonist is such an overdone thing and a lot of people don't like them um, I guess for me, it's kind of gotten to the point where I find them a little bit comforting because my earliest RPGs had so many of them. And I'm not saying that I hate protagonists who talk or anything like that. I'm perfectly fine with them as long as they're well written. But there is a certain way to go about making a silent protagonist have personality. One of my favorite silent protagonists is actually Rudy from Wild Arms on the PlayStation. 
because number one, he doesn't talk because he kind of went through a traumatizing event. He's a he's a strange sort of amalgamation of like human and metal demon, and he's been ostracized most of his life. So he he doesn't really have much to say for himself, even though he's like still pretty kind hearted and likes helping people. Um, but he will, despite his silence, he's not a cipher. Like he will step in and rise to the challenge whenever is necessary. One of my favorite moments is there was a some idiot kids tormenting uh, a girl and he just steps in there and doesn't say anything he just punches the hell out of this kid and the kid goes flying <laughs> and to me it's just stuff like that even if, if a protagonist is silent just like really clicks with me because it's like okay you have a reason why you're not talking but that doesn't mean that you are nothing it means just it's just part of your personality and when it counts you speak with your fists if, if absolutely necessary so it's, what what's funny is that as you were saying this, I read a tweet that said, uh, as a possible suggestion for an, an, a topic on this episode, are silent protagonists and why they don't always work? Yeah, uh, sometimes they don't work. Uh, that is actually my flip side, and that is silent protagonists who don't work. And those are the ones who are just, just kind of stand there and nod at best. I have to say Byleth is kind of bad about that in Fire Emblem Three Houses. What's so wrong with Byleth? I mean, she she or he, well, we don't recognize male Byleth in this household, but uh, Byleth will, I mean, canonically, by story, by on purpose in stories, she is like kind of emotionless. Yeah, I understand that. And I do appreciate that they actually put in a reason for that. Um, but I'm not saying she's the worst silent protagonist, just her eyes are dead. So dead. <laughs> well, she's always kind of just doing the, gesture like the extending nod, her arm or, or her arm yeah and then again i guess like it to her credit it just makes everyone around her so much more lively <laughs> what's your take on protagonists who only yell what's an example of a protagonist who only yells link oh i uh, you know what i think that link is generally he's interesting because of course there's many links across many zelda games and the link yell of course is iconic by now but I feel like Nintendo does a really, really good job with Link as a silent protagonist because uh, the way you, you the game phrases certain answers you can give characters makes Link seem like kind of very lighthearted and sometimes a bit of a smartass. And, uh, you know, he'll see a kid and he'll be like, you know, hi, kid, how are you doing? And, and the answers you can give, like he's not he's not giving like simple yes or no answers. So I think he is a, is a very good example in Skyward Sword. Uh, sorry, um... Breath of the Wild. He's actually, I liked him a lot in, in Skyward Sword, too. I think he had some really great body language going on there. Um, with the more, uh, with the older links, like, for example, uh, a, link, a Link to the Past, yeah, that's just him mostly just, like, God, he doesn't even yell in that. He just swings a sword. To me, he was always a little bit, a little bit dull, but I still loved him because I actually, I guess back then even, I was, like, a bit of a writer, and I would try to fill in a personality for him as I played. So when it comes to silent protagonists, I don't mind silent protagonists at all because, as I already said, I like characters where I can kind of self-insert. And a silent protagonist is designed to have you do that. You're supposed to be occupying their particular headspace. So yes. the less they talk, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's especially true for Western uh, RPG heroes. Yeah, but I mean, are there Western RPG... Uh, I guess customizable characters don't always really talk. Yeah, that's very true, except, again, you might get some personality through the answers they can give characters. Yeah, like the dialogue choices that you have in, say, Fallout New Vegas? Yeah, 
And uh, actually, when they took away that option with uh, Fallout 4 by, make, by giving us actual protagonists, it was a little bit strange. I mean, they still let us have dialogue choices. They just were, they had been dramatically cut short. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I think that the main problem with silent, silent protagonists is that they have, it's, it's hard to have an emotional scene with a character that doesn't talk. <laughs> it really is. Um, and it's also hard to build relationships. I mean, like, when you're playing Persona, you really have to suspend your disbelief that everybody finds the character from, like, Persona 4 so cool. Yeah, they're like, hey, want to be our friend, silent guy? Sure. It's like, wow, you is so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's He's just like... standing there. But, I mean, they always say that the best way to make friends is just to be a really good listener, and you is an apparently an incredible listener. He would have to be, because uh, I'm sure, like, all Chie had to do was, like, pour everything onto him, and, like, she was like, oh, okay, you're cool. You're one of us now. I'm just imagining a, a comic or a scene where... A character is talking to you, and you cut to you's face, and they're not saying anything, and then the character just keeps talking, cut back to you's, you still not saying anything. Then they just, like, burst into tears and start pouring out all of their secrets. <laughs> there is a comic like that. It's the Persona 4 comics by Hi, I'm Daisy. Uh, look them up sometime. They're, they're really incredible. They're hilarious. Okay. Here is my next love and my next hate. Okay. The thing that I really love, so I don't like fetch quests, mm -hmm. but I really love multi-layered side quests that tell self-contained stories or have an impact on the broader arc, i.e. Uh, loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2, or in the case of Witcher 3, um, the basically all the side quests in Witcher 3, or, and here's a big one, the entire side quest in Final Fantasy VII, the Wutai side quest. Yeah, that whole thing, you can skip it if you want, but it's what tells you what's going on with uh, Yuffie and her people. Because I think the reason these work is, first of all, they contain interesting snippets of the story that I can learn if I'm invested in the world. Second of all, they're just more interesting. <laughs> they take a lot, <laughs> they have more interesting objectives, often they have interesting optional bosses, you get interesting optional loot. You feel like when you are playing the, this piece of content, it feels like it is genuinely worth your time. And third of all, like being able to impact the world makes the world feel more alive. Yeah, um, thinking about it, Final Fantasy VI, second half is almost all entirely side quests. And they are, you can skip them if you want, but, and you think you can go up against Kefka with three people. But the every single one tells you about these characters, uh, more about them, their place in kind of the new ruined world. And uh, oftentimes, if you complete their quests, that's how you get their best skills and their best weapons. So it's really satisfying to complete. It also feels just really good to complete a multi-part quest chain that has some really excellent rewards and to feel like, okay, I made a difference. Yeah, I agree. I do like a, a very good... Uh, side quest. Final Fantasy XIV, again, is very good for those. Uh, I also like in-depth side games like Blitzball and uh, Triple Triad. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually learning how to play Triple Triad in fourteen. I'm getting my ass kicked all the time. Walking around saying, want to play Blitzball, want to play Blitzball, want to play Blitzball <laughs> is kind of a meme in our house. <laughs> Don't you have to save the world? Want to play Blitzball? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd love to join your team. Oh, by the way, you're not going to do anything because Eject Kick is just that strong. 
<laughs> I got to play some Blitzball sometime. Uh, as for my hate, I really hate unskippable cutscenes. Oh, those are so like, bad. Why? Yeah, because I just, I barely have any patience to watch TV anyway. Mm-hmm. I think I've said mm-hmm. on this podcast that I end up multitasking more often than not. Uh, for example, I'm watching Better Call Saul right now, and when I play watch Better Call Saul, I'm usually working out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're one of those people who always has to have some sort of secondary thing occupying them. I get, I'm not like that, but I do get very bored sitting there watching things. I especially in this day and age when you give me a smartphone, like sorry, my attention span is now dead. So Dragon Quest XI doesn't have unskippable cutscenes, but both it and Persona are so story heavy mm-hmm. that it's uh it, it's it's hard to stay focused on it i will say because i i don't really care to just watch people talking or going through reams and reams of text i care much more about the the customization and party building and interesting decision making i would say that the story can do a really good job of adding context to those elements but if it's the only thing i can enjoy it but it's a lot harder for me I think in Final Fantasy's case, sorry, Dragon Quest's case, there are story summaries in the menus that you can go back and read if you're like, oops, I, I don't want to do this. And RPGs really don't want you to skip to the, 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 the cutscenes because <laughs> no, they don't. often you'll have to pause it and then hit the, the, the skip button. Yeah, it's like, are you sure you want to skip? Yes. And actually, I think... Um, ProZD had a pretty good skit skit about it that like really carefully that really mirrors my experience <laughs> where it, he's just going skip 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 through the story and it's yeah. like the protagonist explaining their entire uh, life and like their all of their motivations and everything and then you get to the final battle and it's like all right it's all come down to this let's go and you're like who the hell who the heck is this who, who guy are you? <laughs> He did a similar one where, like, he, if you keep dying to the boss and you have to, like, replay the, the cut scene all the time. And he's like, a Dragon King's like, you will never save Prince Horus. And he's going, you will never save Prince Horus. You will never save Prince Horus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to tie into that a little bit, I really prefer lore-focused quests mm-hmm. to be much more, like, side quests. Like, okay, I, I, I don't... Dragon Quest XI feels... I'm just going to keep going back to DQ11 because that's what I'm playing right now. Right. Uh, Dragon Quest XI feels like an epic novel in RPG form. And that's fine. I'm actually also reading uh, Jonathan Strange, which is like the Dragon Quest XI of fantasy novels. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's friggin' 900 pages and half the book is just asides about things that are happening in in the city at any given time. It's like, oh, now Mr. Norrell is going to parties. Uh, oh, and this mysterious thing was happening with uh, with one of the, the servants that is working in the household, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Dragon Quest XI is the same way, where it just packs all of the side stories and uh, all of the... Uh, so many things that could be totally optional into, into the main story. Like, there's an entire mm-hmm. story where you find this frozen kingdom... And you're trying to figure out who did it, and it feels like a fairy tale, and it's your archetypal, self-contained Dragon Quest story and everything. That could have been a side quest. A good side quest, but it could have been a side quest. Frizzabelle's pretty cute. I like Frizzabelle. I I would have loved to have gone into that city. 
looked around and been like, wow, that's weird. I wouldn't mind being able to find out what's uh, going on here, but maybe later. <laughs> yeah, there's actually one quest like that in Dragon Quest that comes to mind that lets you find out what happened to the hero's father. It's actually really good. Yeah, like anything that lets me fill in the gaps, I think that can be a really good side quest. I agree. Okay, Nadia, hit me. Love and hate. Uh, I would say I one thing I love is a good story progression from like small potatoes to oh my god. Uh, one excellent example is something I was just talking about on Twitter. In Breath of Fire 3, you start off as like kind of an innocent kid and he, your adoptive father is a, a tiger man named Ray and your adoptive brother is a little punk kid named uh, Tipo. They are they are a tiger person. Yes, they're from a race called Warrens and Dragon. There's a race in Breath of Fire called Warrens, and they're tigers. Uh, they can he can turn into a were tiger, but he when he walks around, he's just a tiger man with like a tail and you know a tiger face and everything. is kind of neat. But he, he kind of takes care of these kids, and uh, they start off as total punks until they're kind of forced into killing this monster that's terrorizing this little town. And once they they kill the monster, they you get they get adul- they get adulation from the town. Everyone likes them again. They're like, hey, what if we like you know robbed the really greedy mayor who owns the the, the farm that all the tenants live on and give them back their tax money? They'll love us even more. And they do that, and it goes terribly wrong because the of course the mayor is tied into the mob who comes over and burns the hell out of their their little treehouse and just kicks the shit out of these poor little kids. And it just kind of escalates from there, like. Uh, Ray eventually kind of goes rogue and, and is consumed by a need for revenge because uh, against the mob who killed his family. Uh, Ryu, the main character, has his own path to travel as is Tipo. Uh, and it eventually all cumul- accumulates and climaxes with, of course, a killing God. I mean, what else is there? So you're starting from literally effing with the mob to killing God. I think that's a really, really neat story progression. So I, I just like games that do that. Uh, another good example, of course, is Final Fantasy VI, where, oh my god, evil empire. Second half of the game, oh my god, crazy clown from the top of a tower is killing everything. That's quite a that's quite a progression. <laughs> quite a twist. Quite a twist. I like games that have a real sense of time scale. Uh, I think that Dragon Quest V is a consistently cited example of it yes. being done particularly well. Yeah, that's a that's a very good one because I think Dragon Quest V is actually one of the best, if not the best, because it, you really get a really good sense of progression with journeying with your father, uh, growing up, having kids of your own, and traveling with them, and you're going always towards this one big goal, which is finding out what happened to your mother, and just uh, dealing with this demon who kind of slowly emerges as the story goes on, because of course at one point in the game, uh, you hear about kids being kidnapped and you find out they're being kidnapped so they can you know not only see if they're the, the the magical hero that's necessary in the story but also they're building temples for this demon who is still widely unknown throughout the world and it just kind of goes from there what do you think about time skips uh time skips uh it really depends like i'm trying to think of a good a good time skip in an rpg versus a bad one uh, uh i'm just curious what you think of the three houses time skip Oh, um, I was fine with it because I kind of, I am, I am a bit of a sucker for RPGs that send you down a really dark, dismal path and then time goes wherever. Uh, again, Fire Emblem Awakening was the same way. And when you wake up, everything's still kind of dismal and and awful, but your friends find you and they're there and they're like, hey, let's, 
let's repair things together. Let's let's do this. And they've I really like how Three Houses gave you a real sense that the characters had grown up and matured. Uh, Clyde in particular, when you find him again, he's basically rotting like this specialized wyvern. He's become like this really elite wyvern trainer, like which is common amongst his people. And so I thought that was a, I thought that was really neat. I like seeing characters who who progress like that. So I do have a I do have a weakness for time skips as long as they're done in a way that make me feel warm and, and squishy and hopeful. All right, what's your hate? I really, 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 really am so tired of the childhood friend trope where you have the idiot boy who is childhood friends with some real you know some girl. And there's like kind of a forced romance angle and the boy is never interested and the girl's always very pushy and like, oh, you're so oblivious, blah, blah, blah. It's so boring. Please stop. <laughs> I I think that anytime they try to shoehorn in a romance, it's pretty boring. You're right. Nothing's worse than a, shoe, a shoehorned romance. I mean, people can be friends without sexual tension being there, you know. Uh, especially no, men. if they're a cisgendered heterosexual couple, they have to be. There has to be sexual tension, especially if they're both white. Yeah, I don't have a single male friend. They're all they're all sex interests. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On that note, I really don't like. Uh, this is a Bioware thing mostly, where you basically start wooing somebody at the beginning of the game. Your chosen partner. And mm-hmm. you go through uh, a bunch of pre-generated cutscenes, and then the climax of the game is you having sex with them. Very boring. <laughs> Score. I win the game. What do you mean the world's still in danger? I don't care. Yeah. Like, I always said that Witcher 3 handled it much better, where it felt like a, a really mature um, and equal time relationship uh, that had uh, an impact on how Geralt progresses and how everything goes. But seriously, Nadia, play Witcher 3. God. I have it. I started it on my Switch, and now that the update is uh, in effect, I've had even more reason to go back to it. But yeah, uh, it's. I was a little bit overwhelmed by it, so I have to look up some good tips for starters. Here is a love for me. I love any game that features optional super bosses at the end. Yeah. Something <laughs> I can a, see that a real challenge for me to tackle. And I actually think that Final Fantasy X does a really good job with this. Uh, because like maybe better than a lot of Final Fantasy games actually, because there's a range of interesting uh, optional challenges for you to take on. Uh, there are a variety of optional eons for you to recruit into your party, and also uh, some very very powerful dark eons that basically encourage you to push the battle system to the absolute limit. Yeah, those are. I'm not huge into super bosses, but I always love looking them up and seeing how people demolish them. Uh, of course, Final Fantasy VII had several with the weapons. Uh, Final Fantasy VI on the GBA uh, restored one that was originally meant to be in the original game. That was the, the Sars Dragon, Kaiser Dragon, I think it was called in GBA. And that thing was a monster. I just kind of sat back and watched other people beat it. I'm not even touching that. But uh, yeah, super bosses, I can see if you're spending all that time making this perfect character... And balancing them just so, I can see definitely see the appeal of going in there and seeing what you could do against something that completely that can completely wreck you. I think one of my greatest game accomplishments was actually beating Omega Weapon in Final Fantasy VIII. Quite difficult. 
I have never beaten any of the weapons in Final Fantasy VII except for the scripted ones like uh, Diamond Weapon, Sapphire Weapon, and Ultima. Uh, Omega Weapon uh, is a boss that's in Ultimecia's castle, so the final dungeon. They're just hanging out there. And if you fight them, uh, you can be a really high level, but it won't necessarily matter because they have an attack that will do more than 9,999 damage. Ooh, yeah, those are always the trickiest bosses to get around. I actually love watching those kinds of challenges in particular. So the only way that you can really survive is in finding a way to make your party invincible somehow. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is either you have Renoa's uh, Limit Break... Or you have uh, these items called Holy Wars that will allow you to make your party invincible. And even then, it's still quite hard because also you are strongly encouraged to have your uh, HP quite low so that you can do limit breaks against this guy uh-huh. and do the maximum amount of, amount of damage. So it, it's a tricky balance. So actually beating Omega Weapon was a huge accomplishment for me. Yeah, that sounds like a really like fun sort of balance going on. That does sound like a lot of fun. I guess when you think about it, it all started with Warmech for Final Fantasy 1. Final Ooh, Fantasy 6 had a lot of optional bosses. Again, that was a game where it was mostly subquests in the second half. And I already mentioned uh, Zar Dragon. And you had the eight dragons who were not particularly difficult, but they were definitely a challenge if you wanted to seek them all out and, and give them what for. My favorite is when you're playing a game and you're going through and you see a giant dragon or giant monster or something just chilling elsewhere. <laughs> And you know just, that if you go and F with it, it's going to mess you up. I love that. Um, I think that was the way I discovered that Emerald Weapon is not to be trifled with because, oh, I can take this on. I wonder how they're going to handle Emerald Weapon and Ruby Weapon in Final Fantasy VII Remake. Because they got to have them. It's, it's the law. Yeah. I mean, they just introduced Ruby Weapon into Final Fantasy XIV. So they're there. I, I don't know if Emerald Weapon is there. I think they might be. And, of course, there are the enormous raids. And I'm curious to see how they're going to include Knights of the Round as well. Yes. Because they've good already the said round. that uh, summons are going to be very different in this game. So Yeah, I bred Chocobos for 10 hours to get that stupid interior. Oh, and I man. got it. And I was like, what why? What would the Chocobo breeding be like? It better be there. I'm sure it'll be there. I'm actually really into breeding Chocobos in Final Fantasy XIV. It's very racehorsey. Talking about, like, you know, pedigree papers and, and cover fees for mating. And it was like, uh, can I just, like you know marry the the brother chocobo to the sister chocobo and hopefully get a gold chocobo that is not an option all right and in terms of hates i really and this this is kind of a simple one i hate confusion status effects ah so stupid (laughs) i find it really obnoxious when my party member gets hit with some kind of effect that takes away control pokemon does this a lot and it's been a bugbear so bad for it it's been a bugbear of players forever where your player, where confusion is not a viable competitive thing because it's too unreliable and it wastes a turn. But there's absolutely, but it is really annoying to face when you're just, you know, ran, fighting a gym leader or a random Team Rocket person or Zubat. Zubat. And here comes a confuse ray. Oh, you used to move. Oh man, five times in a row. I uh. hurt myself. <laughs> You just it's picture ridiculous. Pokemon punching itself in the face where you're trying to tell it to, like, no, it's over there. It's really bad in um, Pokemon Red and Blue when you go through those early caves and the Zubats are always faster than you and they always use Supersonic. And it's just a real gong show. Or it's even worse when you're playing again Dragon Quest Eleven, 
and you get hit by confusion and your character is completely out of your control unless you cure the confusion and they will start attacking your party members. Sometimes they do funny things, though. Like they try to run away or whatever. That's hilarious. Or they dance. They dance, yes. <laughs> the worst instance of confusion in a game that I can remember, and this is actually totally by design, is in, in Final Fantasy VI when you're in Kefka's Tower and you're fighting against the, the one of the warring triad named Goddess. And her whole shtick is to confuse your characters and you can't break them out of this confusion status. It's, it's pretty much permanent. And she tells you, she tells that particular party member to protect her. And if you try to hit her, this stupid idiot party member will jump in front of you and, and take the damage. It's so annoying. Yeah, I think that confusion is especially annoying because it's very one-sided. It's rarely viable to infect an enemy with confusion. It's usually the confusion being hit with you and it's just an irritation kind of thing. Yeah. Um, a similar bugbear that I have is the poison status, which is pretty effective in battle. I understand that, but afterwards, when every step you take, like, poisons you and, and drains your HP, I think that's so stupid. All right, Nadia, give me a love and a hate. I am a sucker for a good redemption arc. Um, I don't know if you saw that meme the other day about, like, you know, what your favorite or what your most hated Final Fantasy game says about you. And uh, that was actually, sorry, that's a Kotaku article. That wasn't a meme, but it was going around Twitter. And it kind of took a jab at Final Fantasy IV fans by saying, you know, you still cry when you see a man fight himself in the mirror. And it's like, <laughs> that's me. I, I still love Cecil's redemption arc in Final Fantasy IV, like the way he kind of has to beg for forgiveness from the people he hurt and climb the sacred mountain and fight his dark side to to embrace the light and, and blah, 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 Star Wars. And it's just... When you do manage to turn to a paladin and you climb down the mountain again, and of course all your enemies are undead, and you're useless on your way up the mountain because your dark sword can't hurt them, but on the way down you have all these zombies trying to swarm you and you just decimate them with this new light sword you have. I think that's just a really well-crafted redemption arc, and I, I know it's kind of silly and primitive by today's standards, but I, I, I still love it. Yeah, a good redemption arc is always fun. See Star Wars. Oh, wait, yeah. they ruined that one. <laughs> <laughs> if you play Final Fantasy uh, 4, you're pretty much seeing Star Wars anyway. Oh, are you? It's, was it Star Wars all along? I didn't realize. It's very, very, very Star Wars. Like, the whole, like, uh, Golbez, the bad guy, isn't exactly Cecil's uh, father or anything like that, but he is his brother, and, you know, the whole clad in black thing and, and really imposing music, and, oh my god, it was this crazy shriveled up guy all along controlling us, and blah, 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 blah. When it comes to a protagonist, I guess there are a bunch of archetypes uh, that can be fulfilled. I guess I like the protagonist who attracts a large number of people to them, and they become kind of an organization or a group or something, and they manage to accomplish things that are larger themselves, uh, like in Mass Effect, for example, um, or Suikoden. Or, Suikoden's a good example. Or Trails. Persona, honestly. <laughs> Persona Trails. I think Reen is really good at attracting people to him because he... He, he manages some conflicts when uh, he's called upon to do so between his friends, and he, he's very good at it, even though he doesn't think he is. And, of course, he rallies these people around him who all have to conquer this, basically this war-torn land that's just full of, like, weird politics and, and, and bad blood. And he's cast to sort it all out, and he does so with the help of his friends. Well, kind of does it, but yeah, you get the idea. All right, and what's your hate? Um, you know, I really, really hate battle themes that never change. 
And I, I'm, as it is, I'm very much on the fence about battle themes that change, period. I, one thing I really like about the Final Fantasy VII remake, and I guess I can say this because I don't think it's embargoed, when you enter a fight, the music kind of changes to, uh, like, tone. Like, it's still the Mako reactor music, but it changed, it just changes the tone to let you know you're in a fight. And then once you're out of the fight, it just kind of seamlessly clears out and, and resumes the normal, uh, Mako reactor music, which is, Really good because one thing I, I really hated about Persona 5 was instigating a fight and having to hear Last Surprise for the 50 millionth time. No offense to Last Surprise. It's a great song, but any song you hear after 50 million times is going straight into my hate bin. Final Fantasy 7 did a really good job having spooky atmospheric music sometimes overlaid over battles. Uh, for example, whenever you were with like Sephiroth or something. Uh, also Final yes. Fantasy VI. And then sometimes it would have the straight-up normal battle theme, and it could be used as a really effective sting. One of my absolute favorite examples of battle transition from battle to, to travel being really well done is in Chrono Trigger when you get to the Undersea Palace, which is some of my favorite RPG music ever. And it doesn't go into the battle theme whenever you enter a fight. It's a very... It's a very intense part of the story. You're, you're really on a, a really intense time limit. Something terrible is going to happen. And when you enter a fight and it doesn't change from that Ocean Palace music, it really lets you know, hey, this is this is an urgent thing, you, uh, urgent mission you are on. I was uh, I, I think that Persona Four Golden still has the best battle theme of all time. Reach out to the truth. I, I kind of find myself singing along to that when it comes up on like I, I listen to an RPG station and when it comes up, I, I sing along to it. It's so bubbly. <laughs> it's very bubbly, and I think it changes according to like what kind of like if you get a um, I think if you get a first strike. It uh, it changes a bit, which I, I kind of like. Final round. Last love and hate for each of us. Uh, this is the big one, Nadia. Mm -hmm. If an RPG has this, then I'm probably going to be very positive toward it. Any game that has a very large cast of people uh, that will allow me to basically come up with party compositions all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so Final Fantasy Tactics, Suikoden 2... Uh, Mass Effect 2 to some ex to some extent. The larger the group, I mean Pokemon, obviously. Of course. Uh, any game, the larger the cast, the better. Systems for miles. Oh yeah, the more builds, the better. I am. Why here, do you think like, I play FIFA? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's basically an RPG like, with real people. I spent more time just thinking with like, but if I went out and got the inform version of uh, Neymar. And my team would be even better. And if I just move around my formation just a little <laughs> bit and set these instructions, I will optimize my team 10% more and I will score at least one more goal per game. Let's do this. I got to try it out. Nope, I didn't do it right. Okay, I need to kind of tweak the system a little bit. Okay, we're going to go. Yes, yes, it's working. Beautiful, my precious. I oh, mean, God. why do you... I'm playing Fire Emblem Heroes until I die because I it just keeps giving me new characters. And then I'm like, well, got to rearrange all of my parties now. I just got to find a way to fit them in. Did you like math as a kid? No, I hate it. Okay, because I, I, I am definitely not in that sort of mindset. I'm noticing that a lot of our likes and hates, yours are geared around how games play and their systems and whatnot. And I'm more about, oh, this story, oh, this, you know, this character trope. It's kind of funny. Yeah, no, you have been talking almost exclusively about story tropes, and I've been talking almost exclusively about gameplay tropes. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a neat combination, I think. 
Well, I mean, that's why we work so well on Axe the Blood God, Nadia. I agree. Everyone should listen to us. Uh, it's funny because my hate is actually kind of a story trope rather than a gameplay trope. I I think sewers suck. <laughs> sewer levels are so pointless. Like, I can't think of a single sewer level I actually liked. There is no such thing as a good sewer level. I I, no. I I encourage you to name one for me, but nobody wants to be in a sewer level. They always make you feel dank and disgusting. The uh, the actual environments are always extremely monotonous. The enemies are always kind of gross. Uh, you can't wait to get back out of it. The only reason sewer levels exist is to make you feel grateful that you're gone, that you're out of yeah. them. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think the only... It doesn't even count as a sewer level, I think, but Final Fantasy Twelve has that kind of prison-slash-sewer area uh, where you're kind of hanging out with Fran and, and Balthier. And I just love the music there. That's all I remember really liking. But otherwise, if I'm underground, I'm just like, uh... And I, I like underground places. Like, I like tunnels and stuff like that in real life. But when I visit them in games, it's like, yeah, great. Thanks. Um, I didn't want to see the sun anyway. Final Fantasy VII had a sewer level. Terrible. Just get me out of it. Thankfully, it's short. That's the one redeeming Very quality. Very short. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Chrono Trigger... I mean, the beginning of the future area, which is why where I always bounced, bounced off the game for a long time, mm-hmm. is basically one long sewer level. It's very, well, it is very You're fighting grim. rats and stuff. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's the future, and the future is bad. Yeah, but I don't want to be there. <laughs> I like <laughs> lush, so beautiful good. forest levels or glorious snow levels where piano music is playing. Well, I have to say that. Uh, Chrono Trigger has one of the best snow levels, which is Death Peak in the future. It's so... It's spine-chilling for me. Anything with snow is good. Yes. Yeah. And it has a great snow effect. Yeah. Anything with snow is good. Sewers bad. <laughs> Sewers suck. All right, Nadia, wrap it up. Bring us home. Um, Here's a big one. I am just a sucker for really stupid, stupid armor and stupid weapons that don't make any damn sense. And let's just say Tetsuya Nomura right now, because... I know he has a lot of flack, but I like his designs. I think they're, I like how they're instantly recognizable. I like how Cloud has a stupid sword. Sephiroth has a stupider sword. And they just have fights with these stupid swords and this stupid spiky hair. It, it, it just, I guess it just really appeals to the, the, the young RPG fan in me. And I just can't The bigger it. the sword, the better. I agree. I mean, look at look at the mass immunity that, that Sephiroth carries around, especially in that scene where he kills the green dragon, and you, you really get to meet him for the first time. You just see like his victory his victory pose is just him swinging around that sword and sheathing it like it's nothing. It's so cool. Yeah, in Final Fantasy VII, you see Tifa wielding the the Masamune, and it's bigger than she is. Yeah, how does she do that? No, she idea. did it somehow. Just don't think about it. <laughs> you play Monster Hunter. The, the weapons in that game and the armor in that game, insane. Ridiculous. Same oh, yeah, with Dark Souls, always, honestly. Yeah, it's it's so stupid. I love it. That's one of the reasons I love JRPGs is Western RPGs tend to be a little more conservative with their armor oh, and their sure. weapons. But are Japanese RPGs, stupider the better. Witcher 3 has some really great optional armor. Like Yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to finding. Yeah, like um, there's the, I went with the, the cat school armor. <laughs> and the and it's it, it's very involved side quests uh, that actually have little stories attached to them. Like I I normally hate gather the thing story quests, mm-hmm. but these were actually really interesting because I felt like I was kind of learning about 
uh, the school of the cat, as it were, and kind of its doomed history. And it felt so dang good to actually forge each component and fully equip Geralt. And then when it came time to upgrade them, you know, you're like rubbing, you're like going on this globetrotting adventure to try and get all of the armor pieces. And when you get up to Grandmaster, oh, so awesome. That does sound kind of fun. And the weapons look so cool, too. Like really good <laughs> armor design is awesome. I love it. Yeah, you got to have the cool looking stuff, period. Even All right, and what's your cool. final hate, Nadia? I, I hate to end on a negative note, but let's go. Well, I won't go too, too negative, but I don't like scripted fights against, like, bosses that, you know, you're supposed to die against because, oh my god, it advances the plot. It can be done well. Uh, bringing up Breath of Fire 3 again, that's a scene with the mafia that I told you about. I mean, you're a tiny kid, and these two humongous unicorn men are kicking the crap out of you. You kind of know you're not supposed to win. You're supposed to lie down and die. That's no question. But, like, I kind of hate it when you're up against, you know, you're maxed out as a party. Here comes the the final boss. Oh, my God, our weapons don't don't scratch him. Wait a minute. Here's this magic MacGuffin that suddenly appeared after you all died. Woo, we're going to just do this all again, and, and you're all good. And now you can go and, and beat the boss. You're good. I'm going to end on a love just so that we can balance it out. <laughs> That's fair. I, I like this one from you, Nadia. Dumb flower, flowery language from bad guys. Yeah, I can't, I can't help myself when it comes to dumb flowery language from bad guys. Again, this is a very Japanese sort of trope where... King uh, Dragon sends King his Dragon. regards. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, King Dragon, will strike you down, Dennis. Rosie D, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you better come on the freaking show. I'd love to have him on the show. That'd be so much fun. My God. Ah, uh, God. You know, but, that guy, like, that guy gets RPGs. He just does. He, he totally does. It's amazing. And he just kind of packs that, that sort of understanding into these little 15-second like, See, skits. I thought you were going to be referring to Dragon Quest, which is all flowery language. I think Final Fantasy really takes the cake for flowery language, especially 14 again. Uh, just, I, I'm a sucker for anything that, like, I, I as a writer, I should be like, oh, my God, this is so cliche. This is so stupid. But everyone has their... Uh, there's a Yiddish expression called Nerschkeit, which means like child, childish things. Or there, everyone has a little childish thing that they love. I, I guess that's mine. I know it's it's stupid, it's cliche, but I just got a kick out of it. All right, and that is our love and hate RPG tropes, gameplay, narrative, whatever that make us really excited or maybe make us less excited. Uh, what are your favorite RPG tropes? We'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, cat.bailey at usgamer.net, or leave a message uh, on my Twitter DMs, wherever, or just leave a comment on our show notes on the site. We're doing a mailbag next week, so we may read your answers. In fact, I would say that there's a pretty good chance. Speaking of the mailbag, uh, let's continue on to it. All right, Nadia, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the state of JRPGs in 2020. And while we were forgetting entirely about the trails of the trails of series, we did not forget about Atelier for some reason. And I was basically like, are you an Atelier fan? I want to hear about your your thoughts. And uh, I got a long message from Old Man Jables, who says, in a recent episode, you talked about the Atelier series. So I want to go to bat for it. It gets a bad rap from outsiders looking in. There's this impression of the series being a trashy, low-budget Moe bait game. This is a reasonable assumption given the series' rise in the West coinciding with the rise of the aforementioned style of JRPGs in the PS3. I'll admit to having thought the same of the series before one of the games fell into my lap. Atelier isn't perfect. 
I'll be the first to admit it, but Atelier's core loop of item crafting, exploring, gathering materials, fighting monsters, and socializing in town is a compelling one thanks to the equal parts smart design in the interplay between the parts of the gameplay loop and a time limit system that gives to weight to how you choose to spend your time. The item synthesis is simple enough of a glance, but a wealth of options and surprising death gives you a tons of room for mastery. Figuring out how to break the game is a ton of fun. In a way, Atelier is like the Harvest Moon or Animal Crossing of RPGs. The time limit and systems can be a bit intimidating at first, but once you get the hang of things, Atelier is a very relaxing and the cathartic RPG to be playing. Also, lest I forget to mention entirely, the characters and story are completely unremarkable, very tropey, but rarely actively bad. Pretty much every main character is just a sweetheart, though. I especially love Sophie and Plakta. They're just a very adorable couple. All right, so Atelia, there you go. Good for you. Keep loving it. <laughs> he said, on a somewhat related note, I remember in an episode of Blood God long ago, Kat mentioned that Atelier was a dating sim of sorts. I can't speak to why it is Kat remembers it that way, but I've certainly never encountered any such uh, elements myself. Everything is above board here. Uh, I think it was the Atelier Rorona, which very much was a dating sim, where you had multiple guys that you could get to know. It was very cute. Oh, that's okay. All of the boys. Hot boys, boys for days. Many boys. So, Hell's Back Aces says, My RPG's news this week was I watched a bunch of a stream of 1996 cyberpunk JRPG Cyber Dolls. Unfortunately, despite the intro and all the menus being in English, there wasn't a fan translation. That game is nuts. The enemy designs are crazy, have way more animation than usual, the music is great, the combat system is very unique, and it's kind of like Front Mission if it wasn't a tactics RPG. Your single character has 12 spot slots for cyber augments, that get by by selectively destroying the five damage locations on enemy targets to salvage parts. I couldn't tell exactly what was going on due to the language barrier, but from what I could tell you, the plot was decent with a cool twist ending. Oh, and how could I forget when a random battle happens, it shows you that enemies will show up if you scan them and lets you hit a button to cancel the random battle without even loading into the battle screen. That is, Ooh. if you don't lose initiative. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I have played a couple of games where you uh, see the enemy on screen, like it surrounds you and you can hit a button to get rid of it. I think it was Radiant Historia that does that. So that's always a good option to have. Uh, Saladin says, I'm surprised that the discussion of Skies of Arcadia didn't include one of the best parts of the game. You have an upgradable airship. You could collect crew members, upgrade your cannons, and engage in ship-to-ship combat. This is what I remember most about the game, and I didn't see anything similar until Black Flag. Oh. Yeah, you're talking about having large characters. That's That also ties into it. Having some kind of ship that mm. I can upgrade or fortress that I can upgrade makes me so happy. Oh, my God. I love that. I think that's a very... I think that's one of those tropes that everyone just kind of loves. It's so satisfying to be able to just build up a little fortress, a little, a little home for yourself, a little nest. And finally, FTL Mantis says... Regarding the Fire Emblem DLC, I mostly like it, but it at best partially fixes the issues the base game had. Uh, primarily, I wish there were fewer need-to-know things that you can only arrive at by trial and error, the randomized locks in Chapter 3, the nature of the last reinforcements on Chapter 4, and the impact of killing the mini-boss early on in Chapter 5 all change the experience too much if you know the trick versus if you don't. The DSC is also absolutely crying out for the weapons triangle. As it stands, enemies come in four varieties, tanky, fast, archer, ma- magic. If they added the weapons triangle back and limited the weapon variety characters had access to, again, you'd have to make way more interesting medium-term planning decisions regarding subtypes of these enemies. Instead, they all feel the same, which is sad if you're being mobbed by waves upon waves of reinforcements. I actually agree. 
uh, I would love for the next Fire Emblem to have the weapon triangle back because I think that making it too stats-based makes it a little bit too grindy. And I appreciate the challenge of having to be very aware of how I tactically positioned my characters just in case um, I get nuked by a character. And it was even better to break yeah, the weapon triangle. Yeah, I didn't miss the bone triangle too much, to be honest with you. Yeah. Was it because you felt it was too arbitrary or cheap? I, I don't know. I, I just uh, when I, I just did not notice it was gone once I really got into Three Houses. I was like, oh, it's gone and I don't miss it. I really thought that the second half of Fire Emblem Three Houses was kind of a grind. And a lot of that was to do with not having a weapon triangle. It just felt like all the nuance of the tactics were kind of gone. Mm, well, it's a good chance. I guess they might bring it back for the next one. I don't think so. I think that Three Houses was really successful, and they're just going to do it again. Run it all back. No more Weapon Triangle. Yeah, Weapon Triangle might be dead for good. It makes me sad. It's dead. It is buried. R.I.P. But at least we got Fire Emblem Heroes, right? There you go. If you want to, if you want to, you can triangle all day with Fire Emblem Heroes. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, Axe of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday. You can find the subscription information on the website. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back next week. Oh, my God. Nadia, PAX East is next week. Yeah, it'd be fun if we were both going to do an episode, but I don't think we are. Uh, We are not. It will be Eric and uh, Mike and uh, Matt. Yes, yes, they will be the ones attending and covering all of the things. And then we have GDC a little bit later. Um, I think Nadia and I will both be at PAX West, though. Yeah, uh, maybe hopefully we can record an episode then. Oh, yeah, like the rare in-person blood god. <laughs> the one where we like kind of built a recording studio out of couch cushions. That was <laughs> In the good. closet? The little, In the the closet. little closet? Yeah, beside the washroom. It was very special, though. <laughs> It was a very special episode. That was the 200th episode. Maybe episode 300 can have us both in the same place once again. That'd be fun. I'm down for that. All right, Nadia. Let's look forward to that. But until then, we'll be back again next week as always. But until then, happy adventuring. Mm